Amen. You may be seated this morning. Amen. Take your Bibles and open with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This morning we conclude a five-part series, a little bit different than the way I normally preach, in which we're answering some key questions and getting some good clarity as we move forward. Lord willing, on, I believe it's the 24th of February, here in just a couple of weeks, I will begin a new series through the book of Joshua. It's my habit to try to rotate between Old Testament and New Testament. I finished Philippians and then went Revelation 1 through 3, and uh, Lord willing, we'll begin walking through the book of Joshua. I'm very excited about that, so looking forward uh, to be able to walk through that with you the rest of this spring and into the summer. It's always interesting to me, as a new pastor, you never know uh, what changes will be uh, significant and what changes will be insignificant. I've found that there are times in which you want to make one little small change and it becomes something significant and then something you think is going to be huge, no one even notices. I'll never forget my first year into my first pastorate about 13 years ago when I decided just a few months in to make one what I thought was very small, insignificant change. I didn't really even communicate it that well or go through any channels to try to get buy-in. I just didn't think it was a big deal. I made a decision that if you wanted to join the church, you couldn't simply walk forward during the invitation song, fill out a card, and be introduced at the end of the service as a member. Now, you know as well as I do if you've been raised in a Baptist church, in a lot of churches, particularly over the last 40, 50 years, that's what happened. There was a plea to join the church, and then you walk down to the front, and depending on what stanza you came in, depended how much time you had to talk to somebody. Now, the reason that's a problem is because if you come down at the last stanza of just as I am, that gives your counselor about 30 seconds to figure out if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have been baptized, understand anything about the church, and normally those questions weren't asked. We just, as quickly as we could, introduced you as a new member. Now, I didn't think that change would be much of an issue until... A few weeks after we made that change, a couple came right down uh, the front. I met them at the front, and they said they were coming for membership. I said, praise God, that's great. And so I, I handed them to a counselor, introduced them to them. The counselor then took them off to the side and just began to explain to them our membership process. We want to hear how you came to know the Lord. We'd like to talk to you about these things, and, and then we'll introduce you at a later time. I didn't see them after the service, didn't think it was any big deal. Monday morning, I got into the office, and this was before I had a telephone that would give me my emails on Sunday night. Those were the days. And uh, I found one of the most hateful emails I've ever received in my life, in which the lady who had come before said that she had never in all of her life been more humiliated than she was on that Sunday morning. The fact that we brought her up and then we took her off to the side as if something was wrong with her and did not introduce her to that moment. She said she had been a Southern Baptist all of her life and she wondered this question, what gives me the right to say that she can't be introduced on Sunday morning as a new member of the church? She then went on to say she was reporting me to the Southern Baptist Convention, which is not how this works, I hate to tell you. Uh, you can send all the complaints you want there, but they don't matter a bit. It was really for the first time, honestly, at that moment when I realized 
we really lost an understanding of what it means to be a part of a local church. That somewhere and some way and somehow, probably because of the increase of pragmatism within the church, just doing whatever seems to work the best, we have lost the weight, the significance of what it means to be a part of a church. And the more I begin to walk with that church through what it means to be a member and then went through a process of trying to raise expectations for membership and then having so many people mad that we would say, if you haven't been here in years and don't plan on coming back, you can't be a member, uh, to see the frustration of people when we told them that, it was just alarming to me. It was just a reminder after reminder of how somehow we've really lost the weight of what it means to be a part of a church. And that's really the reason we're in this moment right now as a church. It is always my preference to just preach through books of the Bible. It will be my normal habit to do that. But every once in a while, we've got to stop. January is a good time to do that, to just answer some questions. So we've been answering questions like, what what are we doing here? What, What is it that we're all about? That is the mission of the church. Our mission is very simply to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. We then answer the question, how? How are we going to accomplish that? And the answer is simply this. We're going to equip people to live an upward life of worship, an inward life in community, and an outward life on mission. We're going to take everyone who is trusted in following Jesus and lead them through a pathway of what it means to make progress in the Christian life. The last question we need to answer is the question of who? Who is it that's joining with us as we seek to trust and follow Jesus Christ? Who is it that is joining with us as we seek to make progress in the faith? Who is it that is joining with us as we seek to not only make Christ known in this place, but to the ends of the earth? It is the question of what it means to be a part of a church. So last week we we answered this question, what is a church? I think we have to start there. And we said a church is a people. A church is a family. A church is is a body, a church is the bride of Christ. And all of that led us to see how much Christ cares about his church. And if Christ cares that much about his church, and it is central to his heart, if he have deep affections for his church, that it just seems that we should care about the church as much as Jesus did. That we should not take lightly that which Jesus Christ takes seriously. But it's even deeper than that. We were reminded throughout last week, and we'll be once again this morning, that it is the church in which Jesus has designed to be the place in which you as a follower of Christ are growing. It is there in which you are being led. It is there in which you're being protected. It is there in which you're being cared for. It is there in which there are those who are shepherding you. To take you from the moment you choose to follow Christ all the way until the moment God chooses to take you home. There is no other plan that God has outside of his plan for your spiritual progress and growth within the local church. So this morning, I I, I just kind of want to be practical and, and say, what does it look like to be a part of a church? We know it's important and we know this matters, but what does it look like to be a part of a church? And I want to answer that question from Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. We spent, I think, about nine months last year in the book of Philippians. And and I will say, the one thing that surprised me the most about Philippians is how much it teaches us about what it means to be a part of a church. 
I, I didn't expect that. I knew about the joy. I knew about pursuing Jesus Christ. I knew about all the things in Philippians. But really at its core, this is Paul writing to a local, independent church made up of an identifiable group of believers in which Paul is pleading with them to be a faithful church. And in that context, he shows us what it really means to be a part of a church. If you're there in Philippians 1, say amen. Look at verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that, Paul says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Now, what does Paul want to hear about this church? He wants to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. If I see this in you, it's evidence of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul gives three words there that describe what it is that he wants to hear about this church. He wants to hear that they're striving. He wants to hear that they're standing. And he wants to hear that they're suffering. And when you listen to the way in which Paul speaks to this church and Paul's expectation of what, whether he sees them or not, he is hearing about this church, Paul gives us a picture of of what it looks like to be a church and what it means to be a part of a church. And as you read that, it it really doesn't seem like membership in the way that we think of membership. I, I don't really like the phrase membership for a church because you're a member of Netflix. And it doesn't require much of you. You may be a member of some kind of club or organization in which you pay your dues, but there's nothing expected to you. That is not the way the Bible speaks of the local church. The Bible speaks of the local church more in terms of, listen, a partnership in which the pastors have made a commitment to you, in which we're saying that we're going to love you and shepherd you and protect you and watch over you, in which you're making a commitment to the church in which you say, As a follower of Jesus Christ, I know where you're going. I believe where you're going. So I will choose to take my gifts and resources, talents, and abilities in order to help us make progress in that way. It is is a partnership. It's not just something you join. It's a group of people who have partnered together for a common cause. I think the point that Paul makes here is that the way in which the church makes gospel progress is always through gospel partnership. That's the way the church makes progress. The church makes progress through partnership. It is amazing to me that Christ has chosen to advance his kingdom, to grow you, to grow your family, to help protect you and shepherd you through the ministry of a local church. So what I want to do this morning is I I want to give you four marks of partnership. Four marks of partnership. I want to encourage you to write these down because what I'm going to do is show you from Philippians 1 what it means to be a partner, and then why it is that we're asking you to agree to certain expectations. So the first one is this. A partnership is a shared faith. A shared faith. 
I love the story of how the church in Philippi started. We have more information about the way this church started than really any other church that Paul ever planted. Don't go there now, but you can go later to Acts 16, where it talks about how Paul supernaturally led by the Holy Spirit to Philippi, the opposite direction that he wanted to go. But the Holy Spirit led him there, and he went looking for a synagogue in which he could preach on Sunday morning. There was not a synagogue, and so he went outside of the city, and he went outside of the city and found a little women's Bible study. He preached the gospel there. One lady named Lydia came to Christ and said the Lord opened her eyes to be able to see what it is that Paul was saying, and she was a wealthy Asian woman. Paul then goes back into the city. He finds a slave girl who's being owned by someone who is using her to tell people's fortune and make money. Paul declares the gospel to her. She is delivered from her uh, demonic spirit. And this poor Greek slave girl becomes a part of the church. After that, Paul was beaten and thrown into prison. It was there while in prison that through a series of supernatural circumstances, this blue-collar Roman jailer came to Christ. And so at the end of Acts 16, Paul leaves Philippi. He's going to Thessalonica where he's going to pastor or start another church. But at the end of Acts 16, Paul leaves. And what he leaves behind is a little church, a gathering of believers in Lydia's house. And these people have almost nothing in common. A wealthy Asian Jewish woman, a poor Greek slave girl, a blue-collar Roman jailer. There is no reason any of those three would have ever been in the same house except for one thing. They all had a common faith in Jesus Christ. And I love that story because it shows us the miracle of what we're doing this morning. Do you realize everybody wants to see a miracle? Can you look around you this morning and acknowledge what you're seeing around you is a miracle of God? This is a miracle. It's a miracle that you got saved, that God took your old, dead, spiritual heart and put supernatural life inside of it. It is a miracle that God delivered you from slavery and gave you freedom in Christ. It is a miracle that God took you out of darkness and brought you into the light of his glorious son, Jesus Christ. And it is a miracle. That all of us, different cultures, different backgrounds, raised in different ways, different ethnic groups, have all showed up in this place together. And the only reason is, is because we have one thing in common that is more powerful than every other difference we have. And that is our common faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Like that's what has brought us here together this morning. And it is a miraculous thing that God would bring us together for the most part, get us to like each other. Agree on what it means to be a church and to move all of us together in the same direction. It all started because at some point you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed. And at some point you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed. And you found a little local church and you joined it. Why? Because of a shared belief in Jesus Christ. This is why we say, listen, if you're going to be a member of Prince Avenue, or frankly, if you're going to be a member of any church, we want to know two things. We want to know, first of all, that you're trusting and following Jesus, that you have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. You know the reason that over the last whatever so many years, we've heard all the stories about horrible business meetings at a church and churches that have been split by all kinds of conflict. Let me tell you something. When you let somebody join by walking forward, filling out a card, and never asking them a question, you end up with a lot of people as members of the church that don't know Jesus. And you get a bunch of people in the church that don't know Jesus, you're not going to have a good business meeting. Is that right? 
So it makes sense as the pastors who are given the responsibility to protect the sheep, to protect the body, knowing that God, listen, this is significant from Matthew 18, that God has given the church the responsibility to make on earth its declaration that we believe you're a believer in Jesus Christ. When you join the church, what we're saying is this, we believe that you're a part of God's people. And so we want you to be identified as a part of this group of people. And I'm looking at some of you this morning who have been playing church for a long time. You may have been a member of church for a long time. You may have walked an aisle, you might have filled out a card, you might have a certificate, you might have a name and a date in your Bible, but you are not confident in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You do not know that if you were to die tonight, that you would spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. You do not know. And this is a wonderful moment for you to stop and acknowledge that and say, in good conscience, I can't fill out this card if I'm not confident in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to right now, today, give my life to Jesus. I've been reflecting a lot on my dad and his life, and my dad believed that the greatest mission field in America was the mission field of the local church because it was filled with people who had walked an aisle but never really given their life to Christ. There's some of you who have trusted Christ, but your baptism is on the wrong side of your salvation. Maybe you've never been baptized, or you were baptized and then saved later. It matters, because baptism is your public profession of what Jesus Christ has done in your heart. And whether it's giving your life to Christ, or being baptized on the right side of your salvation, or for the first time, this is the moment in the life of our church to get that settled once and for all. This is the moment. We are a people at our very core who have a shared not only do we have a shared faith, write this down, we have a shared pursuit. As partners together, we have a shared pursuit. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, if you go up a couple of verses, you see this idea of where Paul says a verse that I've quoted to you over and over, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all for your progress and joy in the faith. From the very beginning to the very end, what Paul is doing in this letter is calling them towards progress in their relationship with Jesus Christ. You could say that every one of Paul's letters, even if he's dealing with some theological nuance or dealing with some issue of church membership or sin within the church, in all of his letters, what he's doing is writing to a group of believers and pleading with them to move forward, to make spiritual progress. That's why he says in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's the reason he says that we should press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, let everyone in the church who is mature think this way. What way? This way. That God has called you and put you in a church that you might make spiritual progress. And this is what's wonderful about a church. And listen, it's frankly one of the reasons many of you don't want to be in a church. It's because a church is not a place where you come on Sunday morning and hide once a week. It is a place in which you are known. And it is a place in which a group of people love you enough to see if you wander away. And who love you enough, Matthew 18, to go after you like a lost sheep. They will leave the 99 and go get you because they notice you haven't been here in a while. They will come after you because they feel that maybe you're walking in sin. They will go after you if they see that in the last few months, the last years, you are not making spiritual progress. You need a group of people who love you enough to do that. 
And the reason some of you don't want to be a part of the church is because, frankly, you don't want that. You don't want people noticing when you're not here. You don't want someone coming after you in a loving way, pleading with you to walk with Jesus Christ. But it is the way that God has ordained it that this be a place where pastors are watching over you, deacons are serving you, and church members are helping shepherd you and watch over you for this common pursuit of Christ-likeness. I love Hebrews 10.25, which says, Do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. That's, by the way, a direct command. A direct command to be in church on a regular basis. But exhort one another, it says. Exhort means to look at someone and plead with them to walk with Jesus. So the opposite of forsaking the assembly, the opposite of not coming to church is being in a church where you're being exhorted, where people are in your life and they're saying to you, I want you to walk with Jesus, I love you. You're wandering away. I'm pleading with you on behalf of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, to come and to walk with Jesus Christ. It is a shared pursuit. You say, well, how do you know if someone's pursuing Jesus or not? Listen, this is our discipleship pathway. This is the reason this matters, because how is it that we can know if you're making progress? Well, by asking you to do the most basic things that the Bible describes as being a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you realize there's nothing on this little sheet right here we're asking you to do that is outside of a basic requirement, a basic call of the Lord to be a follower of Jesus? What we're saying is this. We're saying, listen, we want you to pursue an upward life of worship. We want you to be here on Sunday morning. This, this, this matters. We want you to be in an inward life of community. We want you to be in a community group on Sunday mornings because if you're not, nobody's gonna know if you're not here. No one's gonna know when you be shepherded. Someone said to me this morning in the hallway, they said, what, what, what about those people that have been coming here for years and they don't want to join? And my answer was, there's really not much we can do about that. They just need to know that although they are here and they might be attending, we have not made any commitment one to another so that when they come in a moment of tragedy or when there is some hurt in their lives, we don't know who they are, we don't know what's going on, and we do not have a way to shepherd them properly. That they really are a wandering sheep that has no shepherd watching over them. You say, well, Jesus is their shepherd. My response to that is Jesus has placed under shepherds to shepherd on his behalf in the local church. That's how that works. You say, how do you get shepherded by Jesus? By being a part of a church where there are those who God has called to shepherd you. So we say, we want you to be in a small group. We want you to be giving. We unashamedly say, if you partner with our church, there's an expectation that you're gonna serve and that you're gonna give. Why? Because the Bible says that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making this stuff up. I would not have the guts to come to you and just make up the fact that you need to be here and give your money and find a place of service. But I can stand here with absolute confidence and unashamedly ask you to give sacrificially and serve sacrificially because that's what Jesus asked you to do. We have a shared pursuit, moving together in Christ's likeness. The third one is this. As partners, we have a shared mission. A shared mission. Now, we won't go into all of this, but the context of the book of Philippians is the opposition, the conflict that was happening in the church. There was both external opposition, we read about that, because he says in chapter 1, I want you to suffer for the, his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, 
what was Paul's conflict that they saw? He got beaten, thrown into prison because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul says, listen, I need you to engage in the same conflict I have. And so there is this external opposition. But the bigger issue in Philippians is that Paul heard that people in the church aren't getting along. Remember he calls two of them out, Syntyche and Euodia in chapter 4. By name he calls two women out for not getting along in the church. I love the Apostle Paul. I mean this is just unbelievable. Like calls them out by name in a letter in which they read openly and publicly. And he waited all the way till chapter 4. That's even the best. Just right at the end. By the way, you ladies. But if you notice, throughout the entire book, it is a call to a common mission. I mean, look back again at verses 27 and 28. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, how does that look? Well, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, here it is, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. And you're striving side by side. What? what? What are you striving for? Striving side by side for what? For the faith of the gospel. You're moving together for this common mission, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He used this military term in verse 17 where he says, standing firm. It is a word that means to hold your ground, to not give any ground to the enemy, to not waver. That regardless of the opposition, you are going to stand in your belief. And so he says this. He says, listen, the church needs to be a people who stand. That they believe what the Bible says. They believe it as it's said. They're not ashamed of what the Bible says. And no matter what the culture around them does, they will stand and say, God's word says this. And we believe it even if no one else in culture believes it with us. We're hearing incredible news this week about our culture going further and further away, particularly in the area of the sanctity of life and this absolute ludicrous understanding of what life is all about. It is the church of Jesus Christ that says two things. Number one, if you have had an abortion, we love you. We love you. And we want to help you and encourage you and in any way we can allow you to heal from that. This is not a place to run from. This is a place to come. While at the same time we stand and say life begins at the moment of conception. Because the Bible says it and we believe it. And anything else is completely against the way of God. Why, why do we say that? Listen, why do we say that? We say it not because we have a political agenda. We don't. We say it because we have a biblical agenda. You, you will notice about me, I don't preach on politics a lot, but when politics becomes a moral issue and the word of God has something to say about it, I'm going to say something about it because that's my responsibility. We have this common mission to stand for the truth. And then not only that, because here's the deal. Trying to decide whether I'm going to say this. Listen, here's the deal. We have to both stand and strive. So listen, listen. I'm really thankful that you applauded at what I just said. Because it, needs, it deserves applause. It is right and it is good. That we are going to stand for the truth. We love to applaud for that. If you want to get applause, we're going to stand for the truth. You know what? We also need to be applauding for striving together for the gospel. When I say to you, 
we are not only going to stand, but we are going to strive, in which Paul mixes metaphors, uses an athletic metaphor, which really means to complete, compete in a contest, to run, to win, to go together, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is anything that should get applause, it is our advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Listen, we are not just a people that stand in defense. We are a people that move forward in offense. Listen, do you see what that is? And I love this picture of striving side by side. Here's the picture of the church that Paul gives. It is the church of a group of people, us, and we're side by side, meaning we're not, we're not back to back, we're together. We're moving in the same direction. What are we doing? Well, when, when it is required, we take our stand. And when it is required, we move and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are standing and we are striving, knowing at the end of the verse that those who stand and those who strive will suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are willing to do so. Let me tell you something. It is very difficult to stand and strive alone. And God, who knew that, who knew that history is not kind to those who try to stand and strive and suffer alone, knew that we needed a church because it takes the corporate gifting of the body, it takes the people, it takes the family in order to encourage one another to use our gifts, to use our resources that we might stand and that we might strive and suffer for the sake of the gospel. We have a shared mission that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be protected and advanced to the ends of the earth. That's what it means to be a partner. It means this, I believe that and I'm ready to get in on it. And so we ask you, here, are, are you, do you understand our mission and are you willing to engage in it? That's, that's it. If you look at us and say, listen, I love being here. The music's good. The preaching's decent. But I don't have any desire to advance the kingdom of Christ or be on mission with God. I want to be as kind as I can here, but this is not the place for you. And it's not that we're all going to do it perfectly. It's that we're all going to make progress. It means that at least in our heart, we have this desire to see this church do something that matters. Like I said last week, we're not going to play church. We're not going to play church. Hell is taking too much ground for us to play church. We're not doing this perfectly. We may not even be doing that that well. But at least in our heart, we're saying, I want to do this and I want to make progress because we have a shared mission. The last one is this, write this down. A partnership is also a shared commitment. A shared commitment. It is a shared faith and a shared pursuit. It is a shared mission and it is a shared commitment. You get that all the way through verses, uh, all the way through Philippians, but particularly in these verses where he says this, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, listen, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, which reminds us that the gates of hell will try to prevail against the church. We have the assurance both that hell will try to prevail and the assurance that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And no matter how much it looks like hell is prevailing, in the end, hell will not prevail against Christ and the church. Christ will win. Let me tell you something. Do you realize that we, as a body, 
are to be making visible that which is invisible. We are to making visible the love of Jesus Christ. We are to be making visible the grace and the kindness of Jesus Christ. And listen, we are to be making visible the victory of Jesus Christ, one person by one person by one person, declaring that Jesus Christ is greater. That's what we do as a church. But the bottom line is, is that if it says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, don't you ask this question, why are so many churches dying? If the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, why are so many churches dying? I would say the simplistic answer, but part of the answer is simply this. They're not dying because the gates of hell won. They're dying from the inside out. Not the outside in, but it's oftentimes fleshly, carnal, unbelieving church members who do not care about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they want the church to be more like a social club or a country club, and as the result, will destroy the church because they don't get their way. That's, that's what's, what's about to happen. And so Paul is pleading from the beginning to the end, do not let inner conflict get in the way of what Christ wants to do in the church because the gates of hell will not prevail. But you have the ability through your discord and frustration, your pride and arrogance, whatever it is, for the church to close its doors and for it to appear that hell got another victory. Paul says, I'm just, I'm just wanting you to stand in one spirit, with, with one mind. And all throughout this book, he is saying this. Look at what he says in Philippians 2. He says, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about the humanity of Christ and how he emptied himself of all of his rights and privileges and took on the form of a servant, showing us that the way in which the church functions well is when we embrace the humility of Jesus Christ. Our commitment is to selfless service, to resolve conflict, to die to self, to put others first. The culture of the church is a radical departure from individualism, a radical departure from individualism. And our mutual commitment is a commitment to serve and to love and to give, to resolve conflict. But that's our commitment. What we're gonna say is this. We're gonna say, listen, as a body of believers, we're gonna do everything we can to protect the unity that Christ purchased for us. We will not let conflict go on and on, but we will, because we're a family, resolve conflict. You realize the same reason a church family often dissolves is the same reason a family dissolves. Because at some place and at some time, someone did not resolve the hurt and the pain that was present in their relationship. And if the church, which is a family, which is a dysfunctional family because it's filled with believers who are still sinning, if we do not learn to resolve that conflict, and we will just be another picture of a broken family. So let me just talk real practically here for a minute before we close. You say, why is it that we're doing this? I mean, here, here's what we're doing. We're asking you to just give us information. We're asking you to check a box that says, having chosen by faith to trust and follow Jesus. Like by checking that box, listen, you're saying I've chosen. I'm trusting and following Jesus and have been baptized as a believer. I affirm these Prince agreements. And then on the back, we have five agreements which are just 
There is nothing in here that is not a direct command of Scripture for the life of the believer. Listen, you say, why are we doing that? Let me tell you. Look at me. Don't look at this right now. Look at me. First of all, we're doing it just for a practical reason because we just don't know who's a member of this church. And it's not anybody's fault this church is 107 years old. This needs to happen probably every 107 years. <laughs> it just happened to fall in my first year here, right? I'm banking on the fact that you still like me and this is a good time to do this. I wouldn't wait a couple more years. Just practically, we need to do this. I mean, 107 years this church has been around. We, we, we need to figure out right now, this is a good moment to say who's in and, and who's not in. So there's practical reasons. There's biblical reasons. There's all kinds of biblical reasons. Listen, listen to these verses, 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, Peter talking to the pastors of the church, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as our partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's what he commands the pastors, Peter does, in all of these churches in Asia. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. How in the world are the pastors supposed to shepherd a flock that they can't identify? Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be no advantage to you. It's saying that pastors will stand before God and give an account for how they've shepherded the people. I, I don't know the 13,000 names that are on our rolls. What I'm hoping is that we have an identifiable group of people so the pastors can take their responsibility seriously to love you and watch over you knowing that we will give an account to God for it. How do we do Matthew 18 without membership? How do we pursue you when you're not walking with the Lord and plead with you to come back? And then if you continue to run and continue to run, Matthew 18 says we take it to the church and if you continue to show your rebellion, we remove you from the church. If there is no church... How can you remove someone from the church? Like there are a thousand commands in scripture that are not possible unless we have an identifiable membership. So for biblical reasons, we must do this. But the last one is, is simply this, for, for missional reasons. Sure, there's practical reasons and biblical reasons that matter, but just for missional reasons. We exist to do something. We exist to accomplish something. And this is a moment for you Having gone through the last four weeks to hear what our mission is, to hear what our method is, to hear what our membership is, and then once again affirm, I've heard that, I believe it, I'm in, I'm ready to go. And there is something a little fearful about this, and there should be, because you're making a commitment to be a partner in the mission of the gospel. But, but part of that fear in us is, is a good thing in which we say, listen, I know I'm not doing this perfectly, but I want to join in with a church that is going to love me and watch over me. And I think together my gifts, my talents, my resources can be used to advance the kingdom of God. It ensures that we understand who we are and where we're going and we're made up of a group of people who believe it. I was thinking last night, as I was thinking about this, I, I just realized that you know, you know what this symbolizes? Listen to this. this, this symbolizes two things. It symbolizes that there is a church that is committed to you. If we don't take membership seriously, we're not taking you seriously. It symbolizes a church that is committed to you, listen, and it symbolizes you being committed to a church. 
That's it. It's just, it's a symbol. We're committed to you and you're committed to us. I think this morning the key is this, is that as we begin to fill out these cards and as we begin to put them in, I want it to force you to ask the hard questions. Can you, in good conscience, check a box that says, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I remember the moment that I was saved. I'm confident that I've trusted and followed Jesus Christ and I have been baptized as a believer. Please, can I just beg you, if you are not confident in that, this is not the time to run to another church. This is the time to talk to someone and settle it today. You could have been a member for 30 years and you are not confident in your relationship with Christ. No one will judge you. We will rejoice with all of heaven as you come and give your life to Christ. Wouldn't it be great to start next week with a number of baptisms of people who just said, listen, I, didn't, I never thought about it, but I, I haven't been baptized as a believer right now this morning. Let's settle it. Let's take care of it so we can move, as we've been talking about, onward for kingdom advancement. There is a work to be done in a place that desperately needs it. Let's be together as partners for the gospel. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.